Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, April the 4th, 2023. Uh, judging from the kinds of shows we've been having recently, things aren't great on the medical front when it comes to the American healthcare system on lots of levels. Yesterday, we did a show uh, with Anthony Chin Kui. Uh, he gave up his successful career in medicine and it saved him. He now writes for, um, uh, for television uh, shows that represent uh, hospital dramas. He can't stand or he couldn't stand the experience of working in the system. This is borne out by many conversations we've had over the years. One, one of my favorite guests, Dr. Robert Pearl, used to head up Kaiser Permanente, has a new book out, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And it seems as if the biggest problem with the system is its inequality. Stephen Berushka was on the show talking about the need for a Sputnik moment in the American healthcare system. He wrote a book, Inequality Kills Us All, but it kills the poor and the weak and the un underprivileged more than everyone else. Uh, another writer, Stephen Thrasher, has written a book uh, called The Viral Underclass, uh, The Human Toll, When Inequality and Disease Collide. Um, it's a prize-winning book. Uh, and other doctors have also got in the act of moaning and complaining about the American system. We even had one young doctor, Anna DeForest, on the show last year, written a novel about how the American medical system doesn't even know how to deal with death, the very thing that, of course, it's designed to fight against. But perhaps not all is lost. In spite of all these rather depressing takes on the system, today we are imagining a better world, an age of scientific wellness with my guest, Nathan Price, PhD, who has co-authored this book. I'm not sure that his uh, optimistic vision of the age of scientific wellness is necessarily uh, incompatible with some of these darker takes on American medicine. Uh, and perhaps that's where we might start, Nathan. He's joining us from San Francisco. He's here in town to give a series of lectures. The book is out today. He's normally based in New York. And uh, Nathan, is there a contradiction between the kind of shows, and I'm sure you hear this all the time from fellow doctors and writers and scientists, uh, about the problems with the American healthcare system, and your vision in this new book of the age of scientific wellness? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I don't think there's a contradiction at all. In fact, I think it's exactly the points that are being made in all those other books about the negative state of medicine today that makes it absolutely essential that we change the paradigm under which we approach medicine large scale, which is what we're really talking about in the age of scientific wellness. Uh, which is really a focus not so much on only late stage care, trying to do things after it's very hard to really achieve disease reversal and instead focusing much earlier, understanding wellness in a much deeper way and thinking about how do we extend health span so that we're not getting into these terrible chronic diseases as early in our lives. Is it always um, darkest, Nathan, just before dawn? Are we between systems, so to speak, between the 
20th century centralized industrial medical system and the kind of system that you envisage in the age of scientific wellness? I think that's right. Um, so to just back up slightly, I think it's worthwhile to think about how we got the medical system that we have today. And so we had this pretty amazing advent of what we call modern medicine in the 20th century. Because if you go back to the early 1900s, we were dying from lots of infectious diseases. There's this terrible statistic uh, in the book. I think it's every third coffin is filled with the body of a child who has died from some terrible infectious disease. It was very bleak. And we took medicine in the 20th century, we made it science-based, and we achieved a transformation that was remarkable. So many of the things that, we that were the top five killers in the early 1900s, we don't even think about today, right? Pneumonia being, for example, one of them. And, but then what we did is if you fast forward to now where chronic disease is our major challenge, we took this approach that worked really well for infectious disease of find the pathogen or find, you know, find the, the, you know, the, the cause, find the pathogen, kill it. So it was this find it and fix it approach. And we transformed that into find the target, drug it. And as we've done that, and we've spent actually trillions of dollars doing that, I, I was just looking up the statistics on you know, total R&D spend in pharma uh, again just this morning. And so when you look at that, the problem has been that that approach has not yet actually worked to eradicate a chronic disease. So it's a much more challenging problem and it requires something that's much more personalized much more predictive, much more preventive, which is what we argue for in the age of scientific wellness, that to achieve what we need to do to eradicate the major killers of this century, we have to take a very different approach. Yeah, and you just summarized it well. The subtitle of the new book, which you co-wrote with Lee Roy Hood, another very distinguished uh, physician researcher, the age of scientific wellness is, why the future of medicine is personalized, predictive, data-rich, and in your hands. I guess what you're suggesting, Nathan, is that the 20th century age of medicine was not personalized, was not predictive, was not data rich, and was never in our hands uh, as patients. Is that fair? I think that is. I think that is actually fair. I think that's not going too far, because if you're dealing with these major infectious diseases, the intricacies of you as a person don't come into play that much, right? If you're infected with a pathogen, you really need to kill that. That's the number one goal. And your focus is really on that as a disease. And as we structured medicine in the 20th century, it then got siloed into, we study cancer or we study Alzheimer's, we study heart disease and everything got broken up into, into bits and pieces and you became specialists in disease. And so one of the arguments within the age of scientific wellness is that we really want to focus much more on understanding health. And actually, right before the pandemic, I was on a panel with the former chair of medicine at, at Harvard Medical School, uh, Denny Asiello. And it was and I really like the way he said this. So I, I've never forgotten it. He's let me uh, quote it with permission a number of times now, uh, which is basically that healthcare is the only industry that does not study its own gold standard, which is wellness. And so because we organize all of our efforts on disease, there is no, we have a National Institute of Health, for example, they're really the National Institutes of Health, but all of those institutes study a disease. And so it becomes actually pretty challenging 
to advance uh, research on the study of wellness in the same level of depth and rigor that we think about the study of disease. Yeah, it seems particularly ironic um, that the, the healthcare industry or the system in this country is simultaneously remarkably advanced and remarkably reactionary. Uh, one of the, the, the messages that Dr. Robert Pearl, I'm sure you're familiar with his work, has articulated to me, he's been on the show several times, is, is why and how the US healthcare system is so resistant to any kind of innovation. As just a, an average patient myself, it's astonishing that it seems the only industry these days which still relies on the telephone. It's almost impossible to email your doctor or your or your doctor's office because they they hold some sort of monopoly and they're so profoundly resistant to change. And yet at the same time, as you suggest, we're on the verge of this age of scientific wellness, a really radically disruptive moment in the history of healthcare. Do we have to break the old system first, Nathan? How is it going to change itself without some profound revolution? That's a great question. And it is going to take a profound revolution. And it was one of the real motivating factors for why Lee and I decided to write the book, because we really need an army of supporters and people who believe in the same vision to make a dent in it. Because if you think about the scale of healthcare, right, it's a $4 trillion industry in the United States alone. And trying to turn a ship of that magnitude is extremely hard. Plus, it has been enormously profitable for those industries. A number of people like to complain in those industries about, you know, finances and so forth. And there are, we can talk about their challenges in, in a moment, but it is also an industry that has grown much faster than inflation year over year, decade over decade, and become just a bigger and bigger cost in everyone's life. And so to make change in that industry, I don't think it's going to happen top down. There will be real visionary leaders that are going to make a difference for sure, but a lot of it's going to have to be bottom up. And we're going to need a lot of these uh, of scientific wellness companies and an industry to really emerge that let people take advantage of these opportunities for themselves. And I really think it'll be a bottom up people driven revolution that will kind of force the change on the system rather than vice versa. I wish I could agree with you. I wish I could be as optimistic as you, Nathan. Um, this idea of a bottom-up revolution, do you mean the patients, the healthcare consumers, the doctors? Uh, are, are, are you thinking that people will just ransack the hospitals, murder their doctors? How will it work? I mean, most people aren't, don't yeah. understand this system. It's a very seductive notion of the future of medicine being personalized, predictive, data-rich, and in our hands. As you note in the book, it's already in a few people's hands, but the biggest fear of all this is that this will be another uh, scientific technological revolution that will benefit the very rich, the very privileged, the very smart, and will have an even bigger uh, viral underclass that, that Thrasher writes about. So when you say bottoms up, how does that actually work? What will happen? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, so, yeah, definitely not like an uprising in that in that sort of sense. But I do think all industries have to follow where demand goes. So I think part of it is that individuals are much more demanding now of wanting to get more personalized care. They have access to vastly more in information on the Internet than they had before. And one of the big revolutions, of course, right now is AI. And so 
you, you know, you talked about, okay, well, people don't most, you know, mostly don't understand these kind of things. That's by and large true. However, when you start having systems like, you know, look, GPT as being a, you know, a good example of that, where you start to be able to ask questions and get back answers. And there's all kinds of issues with accuracy at the moment, but pretty rapidly, a lot of those will go away. And so you'll be able to have a dialogue and have access given to you that will be able to take into account a vast amount of information about your health, including your genome and your blood measures and all these kind of things. And they won't only be in the purview of physicians. And that's going to be driven in part because information and even intelligence operating on information is going to become a ubiquitous commodity that's going to be available to everyone. So I think that's going to be very uh, democratizing to a lot of these kind of things. Perhaps. But on the other hand, you mentioned chat GPT. This is not a public product, not a public platform. It's owned by OpenAI and they're profiting enormously from it already. The company is worth 20 or $40 billion. It probably will emerge as the most powerful new company in, in our AI age. Um, we always assume that these AIs are somehow public and unbiased, but we've had many shows, one with the NYU uh, writer Meredith Broussard, for example, about how these AIs only often perpetuate inequalities and uh, uh, stereotypes about race and gender and ability. So, where, where, where's, where's the 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 public space, Nathan, in your age of scientific wellness? I know you're associated with some um, institutes. Uh, you have uh, an association uh, with uh, the National Academies, but the American system is privatized. The dominant tech companies and healthcare companies are all market-based companies. So don't we need, for your age of scientific wellness, don't we need a more assertive public space? Yeah, I think it's, it's a good point. I'll take, it, I'll take that in two, two parts. Uh, so first, just because something happens with a private company, I think doesn't necessarily block it from democratization. So for example, OpenAI is looks to be an enormously profitable company. But the price of getting access to OpenAI, at least at the moment, is $20 a month if you pay for it, which is a cost, but it's that's not a high cost for a lot of people uh, in the world. And that's likely to come down. Google, for example, is a private company, democratized access to a lot of information uh, for free uh, in almost all cases because of the benefits of advertising. So a lot of these platforms, I think, become very cheap and ubiquitous compared to the scale of what's actually getting delivered to you in terms of value. So that, that's one thing I'll say. The second aspect, though, is that we definitely need a robust public uh, sphere. And I think that a public sphere, particularly as for the applications of AI in healthcare, is really essential. And I do think that a lot of these capabilities need to be made available basically to everybody uh, at no cost. Uh, that is born, you know, perhaps by by taxes or that's in the in the public sphere, uh, because we definitely don't want to have, uh, you know, a class of individuals that doesn't have access to this. But I think the scale of, you know, how quickly the costs of a lot of these things are falling is is pretty dramatic. Uh, if you look at the long sweep of history, you know, the amount, you know, the average 
amount of disposable income, you know, in this country, which is number one in the world on that metric, uh, is radically higher than it was 100 years ago. And if you start looking at that sweep decade over decade, even though you know we're going through some hard times at the moment, uh, I think the the likelihood of these things being uh, available to pretty much everyone is is vast. Now, the other element you brought up was, you know, bias in these algorithms and we can and those certainly exist. And there's a lot of effort uh, going to try to, uh, you know, alleviate that. And that's going to be an ongoing struggle for sure. Everyone's moving really fast on this. The government seems slightly sclerotic to be kind. I mean, you're you're writing this book. You're also uh, involved with the Thorn Health Tech. You're you have a, a hood price lab in association with your co-author. Leroy Hood, uh, as a doctor and as a researcher and as a visionary, um, do you sometimes have to establish a church-state division between profiting yourself from this revolution and forecasting and writing about it? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, you know, I try to keep those things uh, as separate as as separate as I can. Um, I will say things like writing the book are not a money-making exercise. Um, if I get to zero, I'll be pretty darn happy uh, about that in terms of uh, the kind of- Yeah, cost. but it's a good, I mean, you're here in San Francisco, you'll meet a lot of people, you wear I mean, lots of hats. Like most of us, you wear a lot of hats at the same time. You're a researcher, you're head of your own company, you're head of a lab. So it, it, it always works out, um, or it, 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 it should. I, I'm curious, um, I, I'm curious, uh, Nathan, how is this going to, and I can see it working out in two different ways. You know, the, the, the heart of the 20th century medical system was this all-knowing doctor, uh, the medical practitioner. Of course, it didn't work, which is why so many people are quitting. They're overpaid. Uh, they're, I wouldn't say they're overpaid. They're overworked and probably, in a sense, underpaid. And miserable, as uh, as uh, Pearl points out, how the culture of medicine is not just killing patients, but also doctors. Is this new world that you envisage the, in this age of scientific wellness, are, are doctors more or less powerful? Is it a bigger deal to have an MD in the 21st century than in the 20th century? Are they going to need other skills, technological skills, personal skills, skills that will allow them to work with an AI? I think doctors are going to absolutely have to be able to work with AI. Uh, I'm very much fallen to the camp that I don't think AIs will replace doctors, but doctors that use AIs will replace doctors who don't. I think that's a phrase from, I think Eric Topol first popularized that one. Yeah, um, Topol's been, uh, like everybody else, he's been on this show, and he's an interesting guy too. He is, he is indeed. And I, and I, like, I, like, that, I like that phrasing, and I, th I think it's right. So I think that the doctors of the future are going to be very have to be very differently trained than now. So one notion is that the idea that you would take the kind of transformation that's necessary to be able to you know, utilize all the information that we have available from the genome, from thousands of measurements out of your blood, from millions of measurements that you get off of your digital devices over time, et cetera, et cetera, that that all has to filter through one human brain in the form of your physician is a non-starter. There's no way in the world that anyone can remember what all the genetic variants do and how they're important and what your scores on everything are and so forth. So you'll have to be AI enabled in order to take advantage of the vast amount of information that is uh, available. 
Uh, you talked earlier about the slow rate of change in medicine, and that's absolutely true. Uh, you can see these graphs. Uh, I remember going to a talk at Mount Sinai some years ago, and they did this analysis across all industries of the rate of change and the price per you know, unit output over time. And so in you know, the tech industry, of course, is falling. It's getting massively cheaper to do massively more all the time. And medicine was actually going in the opposite direction. This was between, I believe, the years 1980 and, and 2020. And it was one of the only industries that was getting more expensive per unit output. Uh, and so when we look at these kinds of barriers, a lot of it is driven by, by first regulatory burden. There are some reasons for that, you know, in the first do no harm uh, principle. But there's a lot of elements that get bogged down. So there's massive amounts of paperwork that take to do anything in medicine. And then we also shunt all these huge revolutions through a gatekeeper that is typically slow uh, on either on the government side or on the health uh, care provider side. And so it becomes very challenging to try to drive a pace of innovation that you'd actually like to see that has the potential, obviously, for saving and extending the lives of millions of people. So there's always this tension in medicine that's going on between, um, you know, caution and rules and regulations, and on the flip side, uh, a really very slow pace of, of, of incremental change relative to almost every other industry you compare it against. In parallel with the AI revolution, we have a revolution in biotech, in biopharma. Uh, last year, we had Alexander Zaitchik on the, the show as a critic of big pharma. Uh, he has a new book out, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 Vaccines. If this age of scientific wellness, uh, Nathan, is to be fair and equitable and democratic, do there need to be more controls over big pharma, over the biotech sphere as well, in terms of the pricing and development of medicines? I, I just saw a really interesting piece in the New York Times. I think it was from yesterday about these new, these new drugs that will control obesity. They're interesting and optimistic in a sense. But again, one wonders about pricing and who's going to get rich through them and who's going to get exploited. Yeah, I think it's it gets to be a really uh, challenging, challenging issue. I mean, at one level, there's obviously the fact that we actually have these drugs now, which is an amazing feat. I think people have been trying to do this for so many decades and failing at being able to make a substantial difference, particularly on on weight loss, that they are, you know, they're incredibly popular for a reason. Uh, and so I think, you know, we want to try to use mechanisms to make them as you know as available as possible. I think it's perfectly valid for the drug companies to get rich off of making those medicines. Uh, it's just a question of you know comparatively you know how much and how um, you know and, and making sure that they're you know readily available and, and distributed. And I think governments certainly play an important role in using their um, you know their purchasing power and their negotiating power to be able to. Uh, get access to those to for people at you know at a price that's 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 reasonable and that and that will make a difference in people's health. But I wouldn't want to also demonize the individuals that made that happen and that were able to um, yeah give us something that we didn't have access to before. So there's always that uh, that tension. 
Uh, it's a very exciting vision, I have to say, Nathan. I, you can probably tell I'm not perhaps the world's greatest optimist, but 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 I, I see your point. Oh, I, I love that. I love that. That's it makes it a great conversation. Yeah, I mean, but I but but I, you know, I I trust you that the future of medicine could be personalized, predictive, data rich, and indeed in our hands. Um, we're already seeing lots of signs of this. How utopian are you? We've got people in Silicon Valley like Sergey Young, who was on the show. Uh, a couple of years ago, The Science and Technology of Growing Old is his book. He says that in the future, we're all going to live to 200. Is this possible in your age of scientific wellness? I think it is possible. I definitely try not to be overly utopian. Um, you know, I, I am an optimist. You know, I'm definitely I'm definitely an avowed optimist, and Lee definitely is as well. If there's two words that anyone would use to de define Lee, anyone who knows him, determined optimism is pretty much his catchword in everything that he does. So, so we are you know, optimistic in this book. That said, there are enormous challenges in front of implementing this. So I do try to be an evangelist to some degree because I do very much believe in what we write about in the book. I want it to happen, and I'm. You know, as you alluded to before, dedicating my career in both the public and private space to trying to achieve that in whatever way I think is is the most useful. Um, and so so I don't see any reason, though, that with the pace of advance that I expect that we're going to be going into. And a lot of that is tied together with two big converging factors, which is the the birth of AI, which looks like that's going to just accelerate the application of intelligence to a massive degree, coupled with the ability to make these very large scale measurements cost effectively, which we haven't had before. And I really think that those two things if organized correctly and applied early, which is the big thing we argue in this book is don't wait to deal with disease late. Focus on it early, understand health, understand how your body operates and keep it operating. There's no fundamental scientific reason that we couldn't extend health spans uh, for a very long period of time if we can solve those challenges. But I don't want to minimize that. That is an, a Herculean, massive undertaking. But I think it's where we should be putting our efforts. And we're seeing a lot of that arise now, too. You have, you know, we've we've talked about some of these big financial interests, uh, but, you know, some billionaire investors, you know, put $3 billion into Altos to study aging which is an incredibly exciting endeavor. A bunch of my friends went to work there, but it is you know, the best funded, uh, seed funded startup in history with $3 billion to start. Uh, and so there is a lot of interest and effort that are going into that. I think we're gonna go through the typical curve of hype and of a reduction in hype as we realize how hard all the challenges are. But over time, I do think we bounce back and that you know, if when we look back 20 years from now, we will have seen incredible change uh, happening. And my hope actually is that we're going to enter a period where medicine is going to start changing a little more quickly. And a big impetus for that was COVID uh, because it forced things like telehealth to advance much more rapidly. And it shook us out of our normal routines to a degree that there's just a little more openness now, I feel like, to embrace something that is that is new than there was before. You say the future will be data rich. You mentioned Google. Of course, the, the present and even the past is data rich. Google has become a trillion dollar company off its data and its advertising business. How will, in this age of scientific wellness, are we going to guarantee 
data privacy. It's one thing for Google to know where we go online. It's quite another for some equivalent of Google in the 21st century to know all our health data. Is um, privacy something, uh, Nathan, that you're particularly concerned about? Or is do you think it's pretty much guaranteed, baked into whatever new companies and systems and platforms will exist in the future? I think we all take privacy very seriously. And so try, and I think the other big aspect that's really important is to have laws that control the use of these data. I think in the future, it's going to be harder and harder to control the generation of data, right? Every place that you go, every seat you sit in, you leave, you know, million copies of your genome around in, in various cells and so forth. So, you know, one, so there is, biological information that's that's around uh, all the time. So I guess the way I would view this is it's it's again uh, a question of trade-offs. And I think the trade-off in health data is actually one of the most positive that there is. I got asked this question some years ago that I really liked, um, uh, which was um, CEO of a, of a company was asking me, you know, what is the value of a genome? And, and it's a really interesting dynamic because the value of, of a genome goes up the more genomes that there are, because the more you have that genome sequence coupled with health data, and this can all be de-identified. And so for the, like when we do analyses, I'll just say of our of data, I don't know who's in there. Even cohorts where I'm one of the people in them, I generally don't even know who I am in the cohort. Like, so it's, you know, we generally don't know, you know, who, who is in there. Um, but the value, so coming back to this question of the value of a genome, you know, if you think about something like gold, it's valuable because it's scarce. A genome becomes valuable because it's not scarce, because every time we increase those numbers and we have health information associated with them, we learn how to read it more, which makes the personalized health information to every single person better. So if you want to have a radically better health future, one of the most valuable things you could ever do would be to uh, consent to let your de-identified data be used for discovery. If we don't do that, then there is no future like something like the age of scientific wellness, uh, impossible to get to. But if we share data in a way that is that protects privacy, that protects uses, that that uh, then there is the chance to get there. And whenever there's this choice between something that's just a physical reality, because what's at odds here is kind of a physical reality, which is that we have to share this kind of data and mine it to understand health. That's just a true statement about the world, as far as I can tell. And then there's this other element, which is, well, if we share data, will we mutually destroy each other's lives by mistreating each other? And I would like to hope that we could solve that social problem uh, in order to be able to do the thing that would would revolutionize health. Anyway, that's a long answer. Nathan, last year we had a, another quite optimistic writer on healthcare, uh, Harold Schmidt, a German-based thinker. He talked about the end of medicine as, as we know it is nigh. Um, and he has a book, The End of Medicine as We Know It and Why Your Health Has a Future. I guess the replacement to the word medicine is your term, uh, the age of scientific wellness. So medicine will be replaced by the term wellness. But we had a, 
uh, a, a, a show last year with a, a cultural writer, Rina Raphael, on what she calls the wellness scam. Uh, she has a new book out, The Gospel of Wellness. It's it's a critique of not of what you're saying, but of gyms and gurus and goop and the false promise of self-care. Are you concerned that the word wellness is problematic? And might we have to, in this future, and I know I'm asking a lot of you, might we need to come up with language which is perhaps more ambitious, less rooted in gyms and gurus and goop? It's, it's a great point. In fact, Lee and I debated that a lot at the beginning. Uh, and this is at the beginning when we were first starting our initial study. So this was, you know, 11 years ago. And we had exactly this debate, which was the word wellness is tainted. People in the scientific community don't like it. And as soon as you say wellness, you get put into a different bucket. Yeah, you get sent to Southern California to a gym. <laughs> yes, yes. And you do your yoga and all that, which is actually yoga is great. But, you know, but that's the bucket that you get you get put into. So we debated it a long time. At, at the end of the debate, we basically decided that there just wasn't a different word to represent what we were trying to say, which was like to move in the exact opposite of disease. We didn't think health was quite strongly that direction. And so that's when we came up with this moniker of what we called scientific wellness, which was to try to differentiate that fact of what would wellness look like if it was a scientific discipline and if you applied the same level of rigor to it that you do for the study of disease. So, so that's why we, we settled on scientific wellness. Uh, but I do, I do take your point and, you know, we certainly, um, you know, get feedback on that from time to time. That said, I feel like the word wellness is not as thought of as badly now as it was 10 years ago, at least in, in my circles. And I feel like there's a lot more interest in this notion of it as a legitimate study. We got so much pushback when we started studying it. People were, a reasonable number of people were pretty upset when we were starting to study it, which I found kind of odd. But. Well, it's good to upset people, Nathan. That's how I do my show. Uh, finally, you've been very generous with your your time. It's a fascinating subject and, and you talk very intelligently and I think fairly. People are going to be watching this, listening and thinking, I want, I, want, I want to get to that age now. I want my scientific wellness. What advice would you give listeners, viewers about tiptoeing into this age? I mean, do they go to their doctor and say, I, I, want, I, I want you to move us into the age of scientific wellness? Are there things people can do to, uh, to get into this new age before, before they die or before they get sick? Yes. Yeah, so I think that the way that people get into this, some could be through their doctor, depending on what kind of doctor they have. There are certainly certain classes of doctors that are more around personalized medicine or functional medicine, uh, the good ones or things like that, that will be more open to doing the kinds of measurements and focusing on wellness. Uh, some physicians will certainly not be. Uh, we talk about that in the book. There, But the other thing is, that there are lots of companies now that are emerging that you can get access to a lot of this directly. Now that Wait, does- Twenty. Have, I know you're going later today to 23andMe, so those kind of companies? Exactly, 23andMe will give you uh, an introduction to that in, you know, for genomics, um, and I'm speaking at there tomorrow. Uh, there are 
companies that are focused on making blood measurements or microbiome measurements. You know, disclosure, you know, Thorne does those things as well. You know, so that's, you know, that's certainly a lot of what I'm trying to build. Uh, there are a number of companies that will uh, focus on, you know, your wearables. So you can get a lot of data from this. Apple Health has made it very nice uh, to integrate data across lots of different wearables now. And you can integrate data from your blood measurements. So if you're getting, you know, access to, to those kinds of that kind of information, uh, gut health uh, testing through microbiome, I, I think is very useful and you get a lot of good uh, information that pull off of that. Um, you know, we, if this is too much of a plug, we just got named the number five uh, most innovative company in wellness by Fast Company because we invented a special toilet paper for collecting fecal samples called the microbiome. And, and when you say <laughs> we, that's Thorn Healthcare, right? That's, that's Health, Thorn Health Tech. That's Thorn Health Tech. So, you know, we do those kind of things. And then there are, um, you know, there's just a variety of companies that can do things like monitor your biological age. Uh, there's you know, a lot of interest in that. Some of them are you know, more scientifically driven than others, but there's there's ones that will that will get in and, and give you information either based on clinical lab tests or on epigenetics. Uh, and there are a variety of, of things that you can do to like get into this space. Now, most of those, you know, require some level of disposable income to get into. Uh, but if you're not in a, a position where you can do can do those things, then I think just really being active with uh, with your physician, making sure you get your you, know, you can start by just getting things like your annual physicals, uh, looking at devices and so forth. Um, but there's just there's there's many, many things that, you know, and we get into all this in the book that you can do to pull together information across your genome, your blood measures, which you can do many of them, your microbiome, your wearables and pulling that all together uh, is one of the things that I'm really focused on uh, uh, on building.